Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today, well, geez, I get animated. Look, I listen back to every single podcast as part of the audio cleanup, show notes, and publishing process, and wow. This was one big explosion of uncontrolled and unexpected fireworks. Brett and I got together to talk about the one-two punch that the COVID obsession is having on people's personal health. A critically important discussion that I'm sure you will agree, because not only does it affect the susceptibility to serious infectious diseases, but it affects our future and our overall ability to thrive, be effective, and to enjoy life. However, this conversation absolutely touched a nerve. I got my soapbox and ended up monologuing and having a good old rant. Look, it's not my style, so apologies up front. But here's the thing, the issues of ignoring and or directly affecting the decline in people's health is a sickening reality of 2020. I can't sit on my hands and be polite anymore about this stuff as we're being sold a false bill of goods with this biosecurity authoritarian regime consistent of incessant testing, manipulative case definition, suppressing movement and socialization, masking, and now the finale. Experimental vaccines being thrust upon the entire population of the human species. It is absolute madness. This is clearly a raw discussion full of expletives and exposing the ugly truths of leadership decisions and people's lack of personal health ownership. It might even offend some people. Hopefully though, you see my passion for what it is, an intense care and concern for people being misled and let down. Apologies up front if this is too strong and feels too direct and harsh. But please know this, I have zero issue with you, the everyday person, We are all doing the best we can with what we have and what we know. I genuinely believe that. My beef is squarely with the overt manipulation, propaganda and coercion being deployed at an unprecedented scale by ideologically flawed leaders across government, business, institutions, globalist think tanks and technocrats. Oh, geez, look, I'm even getting myself going in this intro. It's ridiculous. Look, as always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this Adaptation episode of us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization journey which is an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, let's get straight into the fireworks of Bryn and I getting hot under the collar when it comes to the negative effects of health that this COVID-19 leadership obsession is having. Enjoy. All right, we're getting back into the swing of things now, Bryn. Yeah, good to be back. It is, man, it is. Um, It's a routine. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we've just jumped out of another lockdown in the UK. Uh, Jumped out out of a lockdown and into another lockdown called something else, the tiering system. Let's not get started on that. Um, But this conversation is going to be about COVID-19, but but not, right? We're going to focus, I think we should focus on the underlying health of our population and how that really seems to be the unsung issue, the the unaddressed ugliness of life. And we seem to be focusing almost exclusively on MPIs, which are non-pharmaceutical interventions. And now there's this kind of energized obsession about vaccines no one seems to be talking about, or no one with any weight, with any money, with any kind of propagandized marketing is talking about the health outcomes of our people through the lifestyle choices they're making. So given the fact that this is your life, you know, health and fitness, 
you, you know, you run a gym, you've been doing PT for, you know, many, many years. You've been hit really hard with this, right? Because you, you deliver a service which has been constantly in the spotlight, either closed through a couple of lockdowns or restricted during those in between, right? Mm-hmm. Where gyms have been no-go zones because of somehow being a cesspit, a petri dish of infection. Talk to me about how that has affected you as, you know, a gym owner and a PT and how you think it's affected people that have been accessing this service because there's now incredible uncertainty and also I think fear of gyms, uncertainty as to whether they're going to be open, whether they can afford to stay open given all the, you know, the impact to their livelihood, you know, the gym owners' livelihoods. And also fear that, you know, we've been conditioned to think that they're not a particularly safe environment to be in right now. So mm. talk to me about what, you, what you're seeing. Well, <clears throat> so I'm quite, quite frustrated because, I mean, the first lockdown, I didn't really look too much into the data, whereas now I, I've looked into it a little bit more um, and realized that the data doesn't support shutting gyms at all. So it just doesn't make sense. And then seeing the onset repercussions of them shutting the gyms firsthand. So I can see how a lot of a lot of our members that come to the gym, it is I used to think it was, you know, I thought, yeah, community and you know it helps with like mindset and all the other benefits that come along with exercise. I was like, that's kind of the cherry on top or that's that comes with it. But what I realized is that the gym is more about the community another home from a home from another home you know people like to go there they like to escape and come to the gym maybe your gym not all gyms have that benefit right no not, some gyms are quite sterile in nature right that they are but even more, so, more an environment to kind of maybe push yourself work out but not so much community yeah right? but even so i'd argue like even gyms where you go in you, you know ty- a typical you know uh you know spitting sawdust kind of gym where people got the headphones on and they're doing their own workout even there there's still a sense of community and um, culture and and I, I I just I've just seen the negative benefit of people not being able to go to where they feel like they can escape and be themselves and um, yeah I've seen quite a few members just sort of derail a little bit since then um, and for me it's like okay that that's frustrating um, but I know there's a bigger picture thing and obviously the government are talking about COVID and making sure that everyone's safe I get that and and obviously I want everyone to be safe. However, it's just looking at that risk versus reward and, and going, okay, well, what's the reward of shutting gyms? And actually, it's it it's really, really affecting people's health and mindset. And when I look at potential members that have come into our gym where I think, okay, well, you're not necessarily a gym goer or someone that feels like they belong in a gym at the moment. Um, but typically when they come in, we can see potential in people. We, we see people and we go, okay, we know that your life's going to change for the better, but you just need to buy into what we do, what we have to offer. And these are the types of people that need to stick to it long enough to buy into the process and start to learn and love it. Yeah. And, and, and it really, really acts as the catalyst that changes everything in their life. Yeah. And I've seen the a lot gy- of these the gy- people- The gym that- is a momentum thing, isn't it? it? Yeah. It takes a while to, one, enjoy it, get used to it, kind of get addicted to the, you know, the buzz and the value. And also, it's very quick to derail, isn't it? You know, you you fall off off the wagon for whatever reason mm-hmm. when it go when it when it's about going to the gym. Either it gets cold or you get busy, and quickly you can go from something obsessional. You're going three, four, five times a week to you can't you can't imagine going again. It's like ugh, yeah, that effort, all that effort. You quickly pivot away from not wanting to put that effort in after you're out of it, aren't you? I've seen that so many times in my life. Like yeah. when I drop. The ball, it can take months, if not even years, to get back into the gym, mm. and that's a worry. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it with so many people now where they've just fallen out of routine, especially the second lockdown because the first one interrupted their routine, and then they ended up getting back into it, and then suddenly the second lockdown, and then it's mm. just interrupted the routine again, and it's enough for them to go and just stop, and you know it. It's just, and I and I just think, I know I'm thinking right now about certain people that I know the gym is an anchor for them. And I'm talking more about the psychological benefits they get from it yeah. because they have issues going on. Um, it's a release. Deeper rooted issues that are going on, yeah. And you, 
I've, I can see the downward spiral. And um, mm. it's just a shame. It's just frustrating to see that um, because they're going to obviously suffer as a consequence. And it's just going, all right, well, when you look at the data, it really doesn't support what they're they're trying to get out of it. And as a business owner and a gym owner and looking at the members and, and the people, that's just incredibly frustrating. Mm. Um, I also personally felt it <clears throat> my, myself firsthand is um, first lockdown, I was training because I have a gym at home. Um, but the second lockdown, it was out of use. So I then got out of bad habits. So sorry, I got out of the habit of training, which then rolled into my nutrition. And then I and just dropped. When didn't one feel thing drops, you, you think, well, what's the point of eating you know meticulously if yeah. not if there's nothing to be meticulous about as yeah. in you know to partition nutrients in the right way because you're working out you need this amount of protein you need this amount of carbs because you you're doing a heavy workout well if you're not thinking about energy energy management and supporting your goals in the gym because you're not working out then why eat like that so then things soften right around the edges of you training and then what else softens yeah. And how you're, you know, the time you wake up or the regiment that you used to have before, like you need an anchor, a behavioral anchor sometimes to kind of like hang everything else off of. It's it's almost like um, I find the gym seems to be a real positive feedback loop for a lot of people. So they'll go to yes. the gym and everything beyond that or after that becomes positive. So it's like, oh, I'm going to eat better now. I'm going to sleep better now. And they pay attention to all yeah. these things when the gym's not there it then spirals quickly down into, or goes into mm. a, a negative feedback loop. So I um, think that's so true, man. I, I, I see that, but I don't, I think we can exchange the word gym and just talk about activity. Yeah. Like purposeful, deliberate use of your body, moving in a way that feels demanding, that requires you to step up, that requires you to, you know, really exert yourself. That sense of like, I've done hard work today. Mm. I deserve what else is going to come because I've done my human intuitive thing, which is I've used my body properly yeah. for an hour or so. And now like, fuck it. Now, if I'm, if I'm already in this high, why, why ruin it by doing these other bad things? I'm now going to align everything else towards this feel good factor of looking after myself. I can see that mm. exchange gym, put anything in there, which is, I don't know, squash, go in, you know, tennis. If you've got a commitment towards something regularly, you know, a, a sporting pursuit or a health pursuit or even just being out in nature but being active in nature often mm. and frequently everything else anchors off of that positivity of moving well and using your body right do you know what i mean but gyms are the are the the solution to people's sedentary lifestyles today yeah but it doesn't have to be the gym it just needs to be what's your commitment to moving and using your body properly yeah and and, and it sounds like oh you know people are going to miss a few workouts so what but um like you're saying there you know movement's good for us and it acts as a positive feedback loop and so on and so forth and short term that's okay but looking bigger picture it's not okay longer term like not having that structure and routine and social commitment it's the long-term detriments the the chronic ongoing detriments that then are causing actually a lot of the issues that we are seeing today and that's kind of part of the bigger discussion, right? Um, and it's the small actions that are happening now from the government that are going to cause long-term um, chronic, whether that's behavioral issues that are going to lead to health implications longer term. Mm. And I think that's like looking longer term is where I hope it doesn't obviously go. But I mean, it's where we're at now, right? It's it's where we're at. We, we were discussing before this. Um, and obviously the data that you've shown on your website, the the deaths that are because of lifestyle related factors versus mm -hmm. just acute like injuries and, and so on and so forth. It's yeah, it is alarming because we are, I've never felt this before. I've never felt a year where there, well, one, I don't think anyone has lived for a year like this, right? Where there could be such an obsessional focus about one thing and it's a health thing. Uh, have you ever lived through anything like that previously? I mean, yeah. I haven't. I don't think, you know, people older than me have, have felt this, like an obsession about the human condition, but very specific to one, one, one only thing. And it seems that this myopic focus on this one disease state that I believe is disproportionate to the risk based on everything that I've seen, 
um, is allowing there to be like a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is you and your health. So perversely, in this weird kind of like topsy-turvy world, we're being told that we, we have to act to, for our health, but everything we're doing is worsening our health. It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. Everything that we've been asked to do right now. Now, people are not being asked to overeat. People are not being asked to take to drugs or alcohol or not sleep well enough or be anxious. They've not been asked to go out and eat crap food. They've not asked to stop working out. They've not been asked to do anything that you would say, actually, I can pin that on the government. But the consequences of the things they have asked us to do is that all of those things are happening. People are not sleeping well enough because they're either researching or they're stressing or they've got themselves into bad habits because now they're watching too much Netflix because they don't have to wake up as early because they don't need to travel. But now they're squeezing their quality sleep down because they're, they've, gained, they've gained the travel back, but they've lost the, the space mm. to, you know, chill out and sleep. I've definitely seen that. So are people eating as, are they on it with their nutrition as much now? than say if they were working out and that was their kind of like their anchor point and you know they had a, a relatively busy lifestyle but they 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 prioritized okay um whether it's aesthetically or otherwise i've got to eat a certain way and work out mm -hmm. so i can maintain my physique so it doesn't matter what the kind of motivating driver was those motivations seem to have like diminished for people don't have to get as enough sleep don't have to be as vigilant on my my nutrition don't have to work out as often. Um, none of that really matters. All that matters is the vaccine and me just making sure I'm locked in my house to save people. But there's a consequence and the consequence is we're all subscribing to not giving a shit about our actual health for the sale of protecting our health. Mm. Do you, do, and, do you understand why, my, why, why I've got that confused face? That, my... <laughs> yeah, but that, that, that's the frustration. And I don't want to sound like, like I'm anti-anything and, and, I'm, and I'm saying that there isn't a problem out there and COVID doesn't exist. Um, I know there's a problem out there. It's just where the focus and attention is. And that, that just like you said there, that's where the real frustration lies. Um, and you just articulated it really well. And I think like, for an example, with the, with the government where they did the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, like, why didn't they do that for gyms as well? Like, if they really, I, I know they did a campaign for um, like obesity and stuff, but where, that where was that for that, a weekend? Yeah, where it was. Is it now? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> and that that is where I'm thinking. Well, why wasn't there more money put into helping people get into to the gym? Or they've spent three hundred and fifty odd billion this year. Yeah. Why didn't they stick ten? You know, why didn't they take five percent of that? Right, fifteen billion and put that towards us actually improving our nutrition and, 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 and investing in gyms to make them, quote-unquote, COVID secure. If they really gave a shit, they would, they would secure, just like they've now finally secured the schooling infrastructure and say, schooling's important, we can't keep doing this to the kids, they have to be present. It's essential. It's essential, right? It, because it is. It absolutely is. Kids need the social interaction. They need some structure. They need to learn, right? And I didn't want to rob them of that. And I'm glad that they decided that that has to be a red line, even if they change the rules in such a way which upsets me. When I think about my kids' schooling experience, at least they're going to school. For me, they're not wearing a mask. They're not doing some stupid stuff, but they have to have a restricted schooling experience. I, I at least respect and appreciate they have decided that we can't do this to our youth. Yeah. Because those those young people become adults. Those adults become contributors to society. They become leaders. And can we afford our next generation to be completely fucked? Mm. We can't. Great. But why are we not applying that same level of red line to people's health? And health has got to go beyond, you know, your risk or lack thereof of being infected by a respiratory virus. We're talking about your actual health which is if you're going to live here for 90 odd years of your life, how many of those years are going to be either in suffering, in fear, or in pain, chronic 
um, diseased states. Because I don't want it, I don't want that. I don't want to be a statistic, right? If you take a look at those stats across people that have died of of or with COVID, and you take a look at the main pre-existing conditions, you will see Alzheimer's, dementia, heart disease, um, cancers, diabetes, uh, stroke. These kind of conditions are prevalent to the tune of ninety-five odd percent. So. We're not talking about a virus here, really. What we're talking about is people's shit poor health. Now, you might go, do you know what? That's unfair. It's not unfair. It's the reality. Like, reality is ugly. Truth is ugly. It's dark. It's painful. It's inconvenient. But it's the truth. Do you want me to bend the truth to make you feel better? Or do you want me to tell you how it really is? Because if I don't bend the truth and I don't sugarcoat and I tell you how it really is, we are one of the sickest countries in the world. No way, no, no two ways about it. We are quickly becoming one of the fattest countries in the world. And from a metabolic health standpoint, I know in the US, only 12% of the US population are metabolically healthy. Over here, I've got to assume we're very similar, albeit we haven't done the official um, analysis on that. What does that mean? Metabolic disease or dysfunction leads to every Thing I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. It leads to cancers, it leads to diabetes, it leads to other en energy management issues such as Alzheimer's and dementia, it leads to heart disease, it leads to everything. Because if you fundamentally can't leverage the energy you're using and you're overtaxing your immune system with chronic inflammation and you know basically dysfunctional energy management and cellular energy, everything else goes wrong. It's not rocket science to think that everything else goes wrong. If the fundamental input energy is out of whack. And that's what the metabolism is. So it just worries me that we have this obsessional focus right now on MPIs and on this, this emotional drive now to push a, and an experimental vaccine or va experimental vaccines out onto the population of which we've not tested them on pregnant women. We've not tested them on immunocompromised people. We've not tested them on people that are riddled, riddled with other conditions. We've not tested them on people that are already highly medicated. And they're going to be the first people we ask them to take the vaccine. It really worries me that we're taking an unprecedented risk, a disproportionate risk. And it might not be risky, but they don't know the answer because they've not, not given a vaccine to the people that are going to be the first in line. So the rollout starting next week in this country is going to be phase four of the cl clinical trials. That's what I'm calling it. And that's what people in the know would call this next phase. Phase three was, you know, apparently the conclusion of the trials. And then they've got it, you know, this rushed approval. But really what they're saying is, and if you listen to their language, you listen to Van Tam, you listen to MHRA, they're saying exactly this. We will do lots and lots of post-market surveillance to see what happens when people take this. We will not know the full facts on any of this until people start taking it. And more importantly, the people that we've asked to take it have not been part of the trials. That their demographic or their unique um, health status. Mm -hmm. And that really worries me. So why are we focused at all costs on restrictions masks, social distancing, lockdowns, and now vaccines. And yet there is none, none, not even lip service towards putting you, giving you some agency, you the individual, let me tell you, do you know what? You don't need the hand of God to come down and look after you. And the hand of God being, in this case, um, our leaders, giving us, you know, both the instruction on how to defeat the enemy squeeze the disease, as Boris says, or the hand of God that comes down and gives you a free vaccine that the NHS and everyone, they're working so hard to give to you. Like, it's just gift. It's a gift. Your leaders are looking after you. They're protecting you against the enemy. They're shielding you from destruction and mayhem. You just have to listen to them and follow their rules. Why are they not giving as part of that some agency? So I'd become less dependent on you, my leader, and more free with agency to protect myself. Mm. They don't care about you knowing how to protect yourself. They care about you being dependent on them offering you some quote unquote protection. Because the more you're in debt to them, the more you're controlled by them. If you're someone like me that feels like I am not following your agenda, 
I've got my own agency. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to be contrarian to your thoughts if they are not substantiated through science. I'm now difficult. You can't control me. You can't tell me what to do. I, I won't listen to the rules. I'm not a compliant, obedient, yes man, because I'm thinking for myself. And that's why they're not educating you on health. That's why they're not showing you how to engage in healthcare versus disease care. They're not thinking about how to deal with these chronic manifestations that lead to chronic diseases. Alzheimer's is rife. It's the number one cause of death across every measure. We look at heart disease, we look at stroke, we look at cancers. It is, these are the epidemics. These are the real epidemics in our country right now. And they're going undiscussed. And you, the individual, just has to accept your fate that you're going to get one, two, or three of those. The average person dying of COVID-19 had 2.2 pre-existing conditions. Why are we not addressing that? How many people died of zero existing conditions? Less than less than um, 9%. It's anywhere between 5 and 9% died with no known pre-existing conditions. Mm. So why do we get why don't why don't we get educated to find out how do we get into that group? How do you Bryn or how do you, you know, 65-year-old man or 75-year-old woman, how do you get into that group? The, you know, the the safe group, the group called no pre-existing conditions because if you're in that group, the chances of you dying are now infinitesimally, infinitesimally smaller. Mm. Why are we not telling you how to get there? Why are we not giving you the tools to get there? Why are we not propagandizing you with 10 billions worth of marketing budget? Why are we not subsidizing, you know, Tesco's and all the supermarkets so your real food is cheaper? Why are we not giving you the tools and why are we not making it difficult for you to make bad decisions? You know, why are we not saying to you, you know, smoking was, you know, is now a bit, you know, out of touch, like, you, you kind of, you're not in a cool gang anymore if you smoke anymore. You used to, but now it's been, you know, smeared to some degree, right? Why are we not doing the same with food that doesn't serve you? Or or eating habits that don't serve you? Why don't we make it so that you feel uncomfortable when you make bad decisions? Instead, they pro they promote bad decisions. Eat out to, eat out to help out, whatever it is, and fucking buy one, get one free on shitty foods. Like they're promoting you to eat and behave in a way which is non-productive. And they're giving you no propagandized marketing, no communication, no tools, no financial support for you to make the right decision. It sickens me to my core that we're this far in, almost a year in, and not once has there been a deliberate push to say, vaccines will come and we'll help you with those. But first and foremost, let's make it so that you don't need our help. Because... We can teach you to fish and then you can fish for yourself. You can mm. look after yourself forever. Mm. No, government won't do that because when they do that, they become they, they, they become irrelevant. They lose their power. They lose their control over you. You're no, no longer under their umbrella of support. And that's what governments fear most is that they have independent, free-thinking, free-behaving individuals that just want free movement they don't like it. They want you controlled. And, and I know it sounds conspiratorial, but it's the fucking truth. Because why else? Why else, Bryn, are we here almost a year in and there's been no engagement at the NHS level, at the government level, at any level, at the people's level? Why is it not a pushback to say, fucking can you help us be healthy mm. versus give us the vaccine? Tell us how to be healthy. I want to know how to not be in one of those in one of those stats you've just called out. I don't want to be one of those stats. Mm. Tell me how to do that. I will take ownership. Tell me. They've got nothing to say. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I think it is? So I feel like there's a lack of understanding and knowledge from the leaders. I don't think they understand the true power in which the foundational things that can make you healthy, how powerful they can be. So proper nutrition, training, sleep i think it's honestly coming from a lack of understanding and them just being naive and thinking that it's all about and i'm not dissing like at the medical interventions that we have nowadays because i think um they're absolutely needed at times um but when it comes to the chronic ongoing long-term health of the population i think that they're just 
they're not looking at the basic foundational things. And I think that's coming from a lack of understanding. And I feel like, and also I feel like it right, is- let, let, let me ask you this. If they knew better, would they change their tune? Like, let's get honest, right? We've spent, we've spent billions, probably uh, it's at least 5 billion. It's probably up to 10 billion we've spent on vaccine contracts so far. We've spent 300 or something billion so far on the general response to COVID-19. Um, at least 12 billion of that has gone into the test and trace program. And we are spending billions on a repeated basis on, on you know, recurring tests, more tests, more tests. On top of that, we're spending shitloads of money on service, you know, whether it be through, you know, professional firms like Deloitte or Serco or other, you know, outside outfits to support the, you know, the deployment and running of some of these services. We are, we have spent a couple of hundred billion on stimulus packages, furlough schemes, you know, business loans, that kind of thing. Right. And we've committed to it. Mm -hmm. We've committed to this is our path. And we've been committed to the path that we were on since March. So how much Honestly, right? So you've made all these commitments. You put all these contracts in place. You bought all this fucking stupid amount of PPE. You've told everyone to do all of these things. They've listened to you. Now, what about if I knocked on Matt Hancock's door and I said to him, let me tell you a little, a little uh, truth about health. And, uh, you know, we, we, we spent a whole day together and explained how all of this manifests and some of the root causes and how we can get control of people's health and how that could be the biggest gift he could give the, his people. Do you think in the current setup with the money spent and the decisions is made and the, the locked in position that this government have now taken, that they would do anything different? I, th I think that the cure is easier, sexier, and more, I mean, we live in a capitalist society, right? and I'm not against capitalism at all, but just understanding it for what it is, I think that the cure is profitable. Whereas the, if we look at the source and we look at actually fixing the problem, that is a long, slow journey where we have to and, educate and people. the government are not in control of my decisions. This is what, this is the, the, the dynamic at play. I can't control you Bryn to make lifelong commitments, mm -hmm. but I can control you to do one-off events. So what can I do that I can control and doesn't involve your action? Or if it does involve your action, it's one-off easy things. Because I can't expect you to have any commitment to anything I ask you to do. So therefore they think, okay, there's no point in me asking him to be healthy because he's not going to listen. He, and I can't control whether he does or he doesn't. So what can I control? I can control via rules, regulations, and asks to ask you to not do and go places. I can close down your infrastructure, I can close down your services and I can ask you to have a vaccine because it's just, you know, it's a stab in the arm. It's a prick in the arm. That's all it is. I'm not asking you to actually take any ownership, any agency, any accountability because I can't trust you, my people, to actually care for yourself. I can't mm. trust that you will do the right things. Therefore, I have to assume ultimate power to do the things that I can control and that's spend money, spin up infrastructure, do bullshit testing, ask you to do silly things as long as it doesn't come at a like effort cost. It might come at a, it's fucking my life up cost. But as long as it doesn't feel like effort, I know you'll do it. Mm -hmm. As soon as I say do effort, like if they said, right, I need you all to train for 90 minutes a day on this bike, register your details. And then if you do that, then you get, you, you're allowed to go out, right? They could, they could say that. They'll never say that because they know that you won't do it. They know you won't train for an hour. Does that make it, does that, although that being wrong, does that make it malicious or does that make it, them naive or, or or not naive but not it make, taking it, the it, right make, it makes them wrong because because they're not dealing with the tough problems investing in what's leadership needed. isn't isn't reacting and using the easy solutions mm. leadership is guiding people to make the tough choices that make the biggest difference it's guiding people to do what's good for them what versus what's good for you and i feel that the government are making decisions in 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 a few ways, which is good for them. We have, and will always be, a dominant power in vaccines. Inventors of the vaccines, immunologies come out of this country, so much, so much science has come out of this country. This is the really the lifeblood of science, this country. Lot to be proud of. But we we are we have always been forerunners in vaccines, always. Um, forerunners in both vaccine development. 
We've got some big vaccine companies, GSK, AstraZeneca, et cetera, et cetera, big, massive companies here, uh, Welcome Trust, all that kind of thing. We've got a very dominant healthcare service. We've got NHS. We have the longest-running immunization programs in the world. We have the highest uptake in immunization globally. Well, not globally, but we're one of the highest. We're definitely one of the highest in Europe, one of the highest in the globe, at 70-odd percent uptake of vaccines in the over 65 you know, we lean in on this and we have pride in just how on it we are from a vaccine standpoint. So there is there is value in maintaining our leadership. If actually expressing our historic leadership in an overt way to the world, not only do we generate these new these these new vaccines, but we come out first and we have the biggest testing program. We're not going to have the biggest vaccination rollout. We're going to do this before anyone else. And we've got the drugs and we can sell them to you and yada, yada, yada. It's all about com- competition, leadership, and it's about demonstrating to the world that we can be good at this. We've lost our footing on so many other things in terms of global competitiveness, but we can compete and we can lead on vaccines because we. This is this is one of our most prized possessions in terms of inventions from this country. So I think they lead from they benefit from that and they also benefit from control, surveillance. Surveillance is a means of control. People control, think about it, it just is. And putting people on an immunization schedule means that they can control your health through other easier routes of delivery versus asking you to actually take ownership Take, give a shit about your health and make some good decisions. We can pr- just pretend to solve your health through drugs, because I believe looking at you know looking at this medical institution, global medical institution, it's driven through petrochemical drugs, you know, the delivery of synthetic drugs, the administering of drugs, medical interventions. Very little of our healthcare service, whether it be the NHS or any globally, actually give a shit about health. As in healthcare, they call them healthcare. They're not, Bryn. They're not like when you go to the when you go to the doctors. What have we been conditioned to ask for, and what have we been conditioned to expect? A medicine, mm. a medicine, if not some medical intervention. And if we have something that's wrong with us, we seem quite comfortable and actually happy that they've signed off on a prescription, especially if it's a long-term one. I've got this drug for free now. And if you get one chronic condition, do you realize every other drug you get thereafter is free? You don't like if you ever have to pay nominally through the NHS, they wipe all that cost out. So Michelle's on thyroxine for her hypothyroidism. That's free chronically. They're sent in a post every single month. And if she gets any other chronic conditions, they too will be free and they'll be signed off on a chronic basis. You think, oh, well, that's great. They're just kind. No. She might not be paying for it directly, but she's paying it for her taxes. And more importantly, we're paying for it as a country. And who's benefiting? It's, it's, no one is benefiting other than people that have, have an ideological or a profit incentive to drive the medical dispensation of drugs. That is what the NHS is. It's a dispensation of drugs. They are drug, glorified drug pushers for the most part. And Not, that, that, that's good. Sorry. That is good when you acutely need it. But well, I'm not, talk, it, I'm not talking about acute. But what, acute what, is different. Acute, as in, as you say, injury, this is ongoing, pregnancy, chronic, yeah. you know, a fall, something yeah. where you know there's there's a when, when you need strong it. case of infection. If you don't resolve that wound or don't fix that bone, or you know, there's been an accident. Absolutely, that that's a godsend. Yeah, that that part of our infrastructure. But please be clear, Bryn, the part of the A and E that services acute issues and deals with things just on a one-off basis is an insignificant part of the NHS from a cost, from a profit, from a resource perspective, the super majority mm. of our resource energy. And if you look at the private healthcare sector, the super majority of the cost and the, the benefits they get are from long-term chronic care. That's where all the money is. That's where all the money is. And, and that's that, where all the investment is. Yeah. And that, but that's kind of what I was going to say is like the, like when you need it acutely, it actually works because I don't mind paying taxes because one day I might need it. However, what it does do, it plays against human behavior and it makes it far too easy for us then to not look after ourselves because we've got it, it's there. We've got and a like silver say, bullet. We, we don't pay for easy it, but fix. we don't yeah. pay for it in a way because you you don't really see that money coming out. Just like you were saying um, before we switched the mics on, you said that um, 
guess we pay for it through taxes, but because we don't physically actually have to hand money over, we don't see ourselves paying every time we need that drug. It, it, it doesn't lend itself to human behavior because we just go, well, I've now got this drug. You've got no accountability. Your diabetes meds that you get every single month on a <laughs> yeah. chronic basis cost someone something. Someone has to pay for that, but not you directly. You may pay for your taxes, which is basically a bit of an insurance policy that you pay every month and every year. That's such that if you need to lean on the healthcare service, you get it for quote unquote free. Some people really abuse that because they're really ill or they've had really expensive um, pr procedures long-term. Others like me never use the NHS. I've given so much money to, to um, taxes. I've, I've negligibly used the NHS. I'm getting a bad deal. But the idea is it's a socialist framework and everyone contributes for the benefit of everyone. Yes and no. Because when you don't have any accountability, both for your health in terms of consequence or the financial impact of you needing medication, they'd be like, oh, just give me the meds. But what about if you had to spend 50 quid a month for your diabetes meds? How many people would stay diabetic if they knew it had a recurring financial cost that they have to physically pay out every single month? I'm telling you now, as you're saying, based on the human behavior, the human kind of way the human mind works, people will look to save money. And they'll look at that and go, is there another way that I can live my life such that I don't have to spend 50 quid a month. Well, a and they would find become expensive. They would find what diabetes is really about, which is it's a choice you're making every day in terms of what you put in your mouth and how much muscle mass you have. You resolve those two issues, you don't need the diabetes meds. Unless you type one genetic issues with your pancreas. But for the most part, most of diabetes is type two and it's lifestyle oriented. I, I totally agree with you that this is a is a fun it's a flawed functional system. It, it is not it can never work. It sounds like it's egalitarian and it's for the people, but under the watchful eye of our NHS and our government, we've rapidly declined in health. Yes, we're living longer, but we've got more chronic diseases and longer time under the pain of chronic disease. More people are living longer with more shit going wrong with them. We've got epidemics rife across all of these non-communicable diseases. We need to do something about it because the Infectious diseases, they they thrive off of bad health. They don't thrive in good health. They mm. don't. We know it. I don't have to make the claim for that. We all intuitively, empirically, and scientifically know that it's your terrain, your poor health, which makes you susceptible to acute-based trauma. No, not trauma is the wrong word, but um, insult from yeah. pathogens or infections or other kind of disease processes. It's your underlying health that really is, is uh, is the not the binary, but the the decision really that which defines the extent of your infection. Like I can get COVID tomorrow, and I tell you what, and I can say this with a level of certainty, it'll probably either express as asymptomatic or a mild cough, coldy, maybe even uh, you know a touch of fever. That would be the extreme. I know I look after myself to know I won't go anywhere near a serious case. You're never going to see me walking into the hospital with pneumonia. I know it because I look after myself at every level. And I can say that with certainty. And you know what? If, 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 if it was to happen that I was wrong, I'd eat my hat. It ain't going to happen. Because I know that the environment that I have created in my body is not the environment that allows disease to, pre to, to just manifest. It just won't. Things will be short-lived if at all. Now, imagine that agency. Imagine if you had control like that to say, one, I'm not scared of death. I realize life is death. Death is life. So I'm not scared of death. When it happens, it happens. I'm not going to shit myself about it every day and trying to live in a box, right? So I'm going to go live my life. I don't want to die early. Well, it's not about, it's not about that. I don't care about dying early. I don't care about death. I respect death. I appreciate it. And I, I love my life because I, I understand that death can knock on my door at any day. Mm -hmm. So why prevent my life? Because I don't want to die when, when that could happen at any point. People have died on mics like we are now. People have died walking the street. People have died in their house having a cup of coffee. People have died on the plane. People have died on a boat. People have died in cars. Any circumstance you can imagine, people have died in that situation. I know I could die right now from some freak thing, a lightning bolt hits the, hits this building, whatever. But I I'm not scared of death. 
I, I want to live and therefore I've, I choose life and I respect that death could knock on my door at any point. So I'm not scared of death and I don't care about the death conversation. But for whilst I'm alive, I want to live it. And to live it well, I need to have enough energy and I need to have a functioning non-diseased body. Because why be around if, if either of those things aren't happening? Why be living in a diseased state, in a degenerative state, in a state that is shit to live in, that's only 50% of who Steve is? Why would I want to do that? So I choose to take agency. And as a result of my commitment to my health, I make a commitment to all my health, which is both my susceptibility to infectious disease and the disease process of chronic disease. I protect myself against both by making the right choices. I don't call myself, I don't think I'm a saint. I don't think I do think any, anything particularly difficult. My life is really straightforward in terms of how I care for myself, but I do care for myself. And I don't put the blinkers on and just ask for the drug. I'm not having the vaccine. And that's not because I'm anti-vax. I just don't need it. Why have something that's experimental, that has so little data attached to it, when I've got a functioning immune system, a non-taxed immune system, I've got a healthy body. Why would I take a drug? Why? It's not, and, and, and let's be clear, it's not to save you, Bryn, because there's zero, zero evidence to suggest me getting a vaccine helps you. It doesn't. It doesn't. And there's never any evidence to say that that actually does work. So why would I take a vaccine if I've made the better choice which is to care for my health. Well, this is where it's going to come out and we're going to see <clears throat> what's going on because I think that if we get to a point where the government puts pressure on pe everyone to take it, that's when it's going to look a bit fishy because like you're saying there, it, 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 if it's a choice and you're going to choose not to have it, that's absolutely fine because the people that are vulnerable and the people that choose to have it will have had it. And those vulnerable people, let's be clear, are going to be the people that won't know what happens until they do it because their group of people have not been in the studies. So mm. I just want to be clear, the people that think they need it most are the people that are taking the highest risk. Mm. But anyway, so, okay, so you're saying if it's free choice and people that think they're vulnerable and they believe in the benefits and they believe the risks aren't present, they go and take it. Why should I take it? That's a happy world. People, It's all choice. It's informed choice. It's not informed consent, no. Because it's not informed, because people are not being educated on the data, on the studies, on the nuance of the studies, on the fact we don't know what we don't know, and therefore you are the experiment. You are guinea pig 21,001. Like, mm. And they're going to do it at mass. You, the, the first few million doses of, the, of this and any vaccine is an experiment. And an experiment not for just one or two days to see if you have an adverse reaction immediately. It's going to be an experiment for years. So I don't want to be in an experiment. I don't want to be a clinical experiment. And that's not me not caring for my society or humanity or the civilization I live in. It's like, no, I, I don't buy in your flawed ideological bullshit. I have a functioning immune system. We're, we're all evolutionary products of 4 billion, 5 billion years worth of life on this planet. I know that my body knows how to deal with a fucking virus. And if it doesn't, so be it. But I know it does because I look after myself and make the right choices. The science supports what I'm claiming to be that if you've got good vitamin D levels, if you've got a low tax on your immune system, if you're holding good weight, if you've got holding good muscle, if you get good sleep, if you eat well, have a nutrient dense diet, the chances of you coming unstuck are infinitesimally small. And this is and where I, the and I accept that. And this is where the conversation needs to go. This is where the conversation needs to be pushed by the leaders, like you say, because yes, we should have a free choice whether we have it or not. And and I also am not an anti-vaxxer, but I also choose not to have the flu jab because I feel like I don't need why? it. Why? I don't, I don't need Just it. Why? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. So where I'm thinking here is thinking, well, okay, well, I'm hoping they're not going to put restrictions on people to say, if you don't have it, you can't travel or you've got some bans or restrictions because that won't make sense because people will, the people that need it or want it would have had it. And then it's up to us whether we want to, really what they would be saying is risking it by not having it. That's up to us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then also like you're saying there is also they're not telling the people that actually the bigger issue is that you're not looking after your health. And we're not talking about people that have genetic dispositions to things. We're talking about people that with poor lifestyle. Yeah, we're not talking about people that are born with 
something that's put them in a, in a really funky yeah. state from the moment they were, you know, there was a stillbirth or there was, there was something that went wrong. And as a result, that has caused massive, like, we're not talking about that. We're mm. talking about a healthy individual that becomes unhealthy through their life. Yeah. So and you have to take ownership of that. It's un, It's ugly. It's inconvenient. It's unfair. It seems impolite. But you have to take ownership of your health. And, and, and this sounds callous and it's not. We need to look at things like the, the ugly truths of disease. And we have to look at some one of the ugliest forms of disease, one of the most debilitating forms of disease, which is cancer. And we have to have an honest conversation about how much of the cancer that we currently see in the environment is due to the choices of that individual over decades. Naive choices, ignorant choices, not, not purposely wanting cancer. No one wants cancer. And if you don't know what to do, you do what you do, and then at some point, you know, reality catches up with you. But that is a is a is a horrible, diseased state, and it can affect any organ, and it can metastasize, and it can be it can end your life. The best, the best cure for cancer is prevention, and it means stop getting cancer. Like stop getting cancer. How do you do that? Well, you need to take some ownership of what you put in your fucking mouth mm. over the long haul, and you need to make make some choices which put you first, not the, uh, the chasing a moment of joy at the sacrifice of your long-term health and then, then get pissed off about, you know, the healthcare service or the, the lack of effective invention from, you know, the billions and billions of pounds spent from cancer research. Like, don't blame them. We're trying to resolve a problem you can resolve yourself if only you knew better. Now, I'm not blaming people for not knowing but here's this is the this is the call right here right now, which is to say we do know better now. We do know how. We might not know how to cure cancer, but we know how to prevent cancer. What's the choice? What are you going to do? We know how to make Alzheimer's a much lower probability in your life. We know how to not have diabetes. We know how to not have heart disease. We know how to not have these diseases. But it's difficult because you have to commit to living a more intuitively naturally aligned to your evolutionary kind of biological instincts as a as an animal mm. as the the animal called humans you need to live in a human appropriate way and eat in a human appropriate diet and stop trying to complicate it just eat what you're supposed to eat move in the way you're supposed to move and care for yourself and that 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 is it at the we don't need technology we don't need bill gates or some other inventor to make some uh, radical products, whether it's a vaccine or whether it's some fake meat or whether it's some other synthetic bullshit food or medicine. We don't need human innovation to be able to live a healthy life. We just need to make the right choices as an individual. But unfortunately, our governments, our leaders, our think tanks, our institutions and the globalist technocrats of the world believe that the solution to the future is human innovation, is technology. Technology is always the solution to anything. I disagree. I'm not saying I, I hate technology. I love technology. But don't abuse my body with it. Mm. It should enable me to live a richer life, not so you can manage me more, you can survey me more, you can you control me more, and you can manipulate my genetics and manipulate my biology. Like, no, I don't need you to manipulate my biology through technology. I need you to support my biology by giving me appropriate amounts of technology where it makes sense and know the line between that's a computer there and this is my body. And never the two shall meet if you want to be healthy. You start interfacing those two things, I go wrong because I'm not a fucking computer. Do you know what I mean? Well, look, when you do start interfacing, when you start staring into a screen late at night, that affects your circadian rhythm. Things start going wrong. And, and, that, and you know, there's there's technology, there's 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 some concerns around Bluetooth and Wi-Fi exposure long term. Long term, we're not talking about episodes of a little bit of Wi-Fi. We're talking about long term exposures to these radio waves. Like what's happening at the cellular level? Because we are just electrons ultimately. Like I'm, I don't want to get, I don't want to go off on a tangent. The point is, our health should be a centerpiece of the discussion right now, not not this biosecurity nonsense. Our actual health. Because if we were healthy as a population, let's face it, 70% of all COVID deaths have come from 10 countries. 10. 
Look at those 10 countries and look at what's happening to their people. Look at their disease prevalence. Look at their waist circumference. Look at their lifestyles. Mm. It's no fucking mistake. There's no mistakes. We have to start taking some fucking ownership as individuals, not wanting the fix, not wanting the silver bullet, not wanting the hand from God to come down and just make life easier again. And, and I see this and it's concerning because I, I speak to NHS people. I'm inundated with messages at the moment and I get people from the NHS saying, I wish I could speak out, but I can't. And this is what I think and this is what, whatever. And someone reached out and said, like, I'm going to take the vaccine because we are crippled at the moment as a service. We've got socially distanced wards. We've got so many people off because of uh, trekking and tracing. You know, our staff absences are through the roof. Uh, we've got this mental and kind of um, psychological fatigue, you know, emanating through our workforce. We're seeing mental health issues walking through the door and an alarming clip. We're dealing with uh, self-harm and suicide at, at much higher rates. Like for our people, we need to deliver a better service. And for our actual workers, we need them to work in an environment that's less stressful. So therefore, I will take the vaccine. And you can't blame that solution. And, and, and I get that. But the problem with that, Bryn, <clears throat> is that that person is, is responding to the policy. Mm. They're saying, if I take the vaccine, the policy will adjust. They're not responding because I tested them, I tested them significantly on this. They're not responding with a scientific mind. They're not responding on a, I'm doing this because the policy will change because the science proves that when I do that, the policy can change. They're saying, I'm going to take the vaccine because I need the policy to change. And that for me is coercion. That for me is not scientific. That for me is, is bullying into a decision that supports someone else's ideology, but is not grounded in science. And that's really saddening because that person wants to do good and they don't want stress in their environment and they don't want people around them to be stressed and they want to deliver a better service to the public. And they're feeling coerced and forced to take the vaccine because they believe it's the only way out. And it's sad, man. It's really sad. I th and I, I mean, we've had this problem long before COVID even existed because I say existed, but happened. Um, with the health industry, you can see that everyone's looking for the shortcut and the, the silver bullet. And actually it's it's right there in front of us. It's, it's the simplicity of living just how we should be as humans. Yet we're all looking for the way, the way we can solve it quickly and pro with profit, but like you're saying there, the reason he's going to take the vaccine is because it is a quick solution. Mm -hmm. It's a quick, it's the quick, the quickest and easiest solution for the problem right there and then. But it's not. But, a, he's but, been... it, but it's not a solution. Here's here's the problem. We're conflating. Sorry, Brent. We're conflating policy with science. This individual is not clued up on the science enough to be unequivocal in their conclusion. But there, and, and and I don't even know how much, I, I guess from the back and forth that this, this person doesn't necessarily trust many of the decisions related to COVID this year. But their heart wants an easier life. Their heart wants less stress in the system. And their heart wants to deliver a better service to their people. And as, as a result, they're conflating policy with science. It's a solution rather than... Than it's the solution. It's not. It's not the biological solution. <laughs> it is the policy solution. Yeah. Right. And that is the problem. We live in a world where we have the the church of vaccines, the religion of vaccines, and I can tell you it's a religion because the words they're a miracle. Um, that you know, if you don't take your vaccine, you're a bad person. Um, I believe in it. I I will take any vaccine. As soon as someone says I will take any vaccine, like I can't talk to you. Because that's like me saying I will take any medicine. And we know that some medicines are not very good. And they're, they're, they're not very efficacious. And, and like you wouldn't take a cancer med if you don't have cancer, would you? You wouldn't take chemo if you don't have cancer. You wouldn't take diabetes meds. You wouldn't have extra insulin if you don't have a, di you don't have a diabetes problem. I wouldn't take ibuprofen for the sake of it. I wouldn't take corticosteroids. I wouldn't put steroids on my face if I don't need it. Because they come with consequences. And I know that because I've had medication and they've given, they've had consequences on my life. So we don't willy-nilly take medicine. And we don't, and I don't say all medicine is the same. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's an ibuprofen to cowpole to Viagra to, you know, to statins. Like I don't treat them all the same. I say, what's the application? Do I have a problem? Is it necessary? And what, 
what's the package insert on that med? Like, what's the deal? What are the side effects? What are the consequences? Let me think about that one med. No, they're asking us to universally trust vaccines. It doesn't matter if it's a tetanus vaccine, a polio vaccine, a yellow fever vaccine, or a brand new experimental, never tried before, new platform that we've tested for two months, the COVID vaccine or vaccines. How can you put them in a universal camp of all vaccines are good? All vaccines are miracles. All vaccines are just humanity working and delivering philanthropic beautifulness. Bollocks. Every vaccine should be treated in isolation. So I'm not anti-vax. But prove to me on the merit that I need that particular vaccine and that the evidence to suggest it's both safe and effective is there and it's unequivocal and it's not smoke and mirrors. And that's the problem. We have a church of vaccines. We have a blind faith and we have a re- we have a submission. That's what I really think we have right now. People are submitting because they want their life back. But what they don't realize is they're never going to have their fucking life back. We're not going to go back to completely before the way it was before because why? Why would they give up the surveillance? Why would they give up the testing? Why would they give up the control? Why would they give up the immunization program? This is going to be on forever now. If you submit to it and people submit to it because they're tired, they're fatigued, they're done. They don't want this bullshit anymore. They don't want another lockdown. They don't want more tears. They don't want this incessant focus on COVID. If, if the vaccine comes and it means we can stop talking about it, I'll fucking take it is what they're thinking. But that is not what's on offer. And the vaccine is unnecessary. And if you don't believe that to be the case, then do your own bloody research, but do the research. Don't just blindly faith, have faith that one vaccine is the same as all and they're all good and I should take this and it's great. Life's great. And it's this magic pill that magically changes stuff. It doesn't fucking do anything. And the last point I want to make, and I know, and I, know I need to keep it brief because you've got to go, is um, all of this, all of this, nonsense precipitates from one one point it comes it all emanates from one issue the biggest issue we have right now is the definition of a covid-19 infection we define a covid-19 infection we're calling it a case as someone who has a positive pcr test but the pcr test doesn't test for a covid infection it tests for a couple of dead viral fragments. Now they might be live and they might be have you might have an active infection, but it can't, it can't discern. It does not know. The test doesn't know if you have an infection. It doesn't know whether you're infectious. It doesn't know if you have transmissibility date and it doesn't know if you had an infection months ago or you're currently in one. It doesn't know. So good clinical practice would be a case should be defined as like normally, if I said, how would you define a, a heart heart attack case? But I had a fucking heart attack. Or I've 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 done a I've done a you know a CAC scan on their heart. I've looked at their eyes like riddled with cal- you know with plaque and calcium. I can see you know you see the person. How do how do you define a diabetic case? Well, they've got blood sugar. No, you wouldn't say that. You'd say they've got irregular blood sugar. I've monitored them. They are struggling with these symptoms. They clearly having an issue of blood glucose management, we're going to need intervention, whether it be dietary or medical. But I wouldn't call you a diabetic case, just because I've tested if you've got blood sugar in your blood. It's fucking nonsense, Mm. right? So we would we would normally look for the signs and symptoms of a disease. And then we'd back it up with some biological test. So do you have the problem we're talking about? Is it manifesting through a unique expression of disease of, of a disease state? And if that isn't the case, then you're not a case. So why are the cases, as defined by the WHO and offered and, and supported by every global government, a case is just a positive test? And we know that a positive positive test doesn't mean anything. The case a case definition should be you're presenting a robust cluster of the COVID nineteen symptoms, which, by the way, are not unique. The same as any same as me having a cough today. Of, in, in, there's probably 50,000 different ways I could get the same symptoms. But nonetheless, you have the signs and symptoms, the unique cluster of them, and I've tested you, and you've got a robustly positive test. Then I'd say, okay, add me to the metrics. I'm now a, I'm now a proper case, an infectious case with an infection. Mm. If we'd done that, everything would disappear. We'd have some, but the number would be tiny, 10, 10% maybe. 
And then if, if we've got 10% of the cases, we've then got to have 10% of the hospitalizations, which means we're going to have 10% of the ICU, we're going to have 10% of deaths. This thing disappears, the need for a vaccine disappears, the whole pressure and push for extra surveillance, more data, more testing, it loses its weight, it loses its pressure. There's no longer the quid pro quo. You've no longer got the hold on me to do all of these things because I can't justify doing it. And that's why we have case definition the way it is. We want it as broad and malleable and flexible as possible so they can include as many numbers as they wish to be able to continue to justify the authoritarian approach to how we're being managed and that the solution has to be medical and it has to be drug-based and it has to be technology-based. And whilst we're at it, let's, let's claim more globalism, more technocracy. It's, it frustrates me. Right. And I know I don't normally get really animated, but I get animated about this because our health is declining mentally, psychologically, physically, biologically. We're not getting anywhere. We're quickly going backwards as individuals and we're going backwards as a society and a civilization. And we're going backwards in terms of democracy and leadership that actually cares for the people. We are going backwards. We are going back in time to the all-powerful having overt control of the people. And that the expression of that is COVID-19. Anyway. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> any, any, that, any, any response to that before we, uh, we close the mic? No, I think we've, we've covered what we needed to say and we need to shift the, the conversation. And I think we, if we don't, then we're going to keep ignoring what's important, yes, which, is our, which is our health, ultimately. Yes, yes. Thank you for... Let me monologue a bit yeah. too much today. I, <laughs> I've got to, I've got to no check worries. myself. I'm sorry. I just get overly animated <laughs> about this. Thank you, Bryn. Thank you, listeners. Keep well. Speak to you soon. Cheers, guys. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please. And write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.